Chapter 4 of In the Field, 1914-1915 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by FNH In the Field, 1914-1915 by Marcel Dupont Chapter 4 Chapter 4 The Jewel Gone Affair On September the 9th, at about eight o'clock in the evening, our advance scouts entered Montigny-les-Condes at the moment when the last dragoons of the Prussian Guard were leaving it at full speed. Our pursuit was stopped by the night, which was very dark. Large, threatening clouds were moving across the sky, making it impossible to see ten paces ahead. Whilst the captains were hastily posting guards all around the village, whilst the lieutenants were erecting barricades at all the outlets and setting sentries over them, the quartermasters had all the barns and stables thrown open. With the help of the inhabitants, they portioned out, as well as they could, the insufficient accommodation among the men and the horses of the squadron. In each troop, campfires were lighted under the shelter of walls, so that the enemy could not see them. What a dinner we had that evening! It was in a large room with a low, open roof supported by small beams. The walls were smoke-blackened and dirty. On a chest placed near the door, I can still see a big pile of ration loaves, thrown together anyhow, and leaning over the hearth of the large fireplace, lit by the wood fire, was an unknown man who was stirring something in a pot. Round the large table a score of hungry and jaded but merry officers were fraternally sharing some pieces of meat which the man took out of the pot. The captain and I ate off of the same plate and drank out of the same metal cup, for crockery was scarce. The poor woman of the house ran round the table, consumed by her eagerness to make everybody comfortable. And in the farthest corner, away from the light, a very old peasant with a dazed look and haggard eyes was watching the unexpected scene. The company heartily cheered Captain C for his cleverness in finding and bringing to light, from some nook or other, a large pitcher of rough wine. For three days we had been pursuing and fighting the German army, and we were tired out but we had not felt it until the evening on stopping to give our poor horses a little rest. Before the last mouthful had been swallowed, several of us were already snoring with their heads on their arms upon the table. The rest were talking about the situation. The enemy was retreating rapidly on the Marne. He must have crossed it by now, leaving as cover for his retreat the division of the cavalry of the guard which our brigade had been fighting unceasingly ever since the Battle of September 6th. Would they have time to blow up all the bridges behind them? Should we be obliged to wait until our sappers had built new ones before we could resume our pursuit? We were particularly anxious about two fine officers that our colonel had just sent out on a reconnaissance, F, of the Chasseurs d'Afrique, and my old friend O, of our squadron. We wondered anxiously whether they would be able to perform their task, to get at all costs as far as the Marne, and let us know by dawn whether the river could be crossed either at mont saint pere Jalgorn, Passy-sur-Marne, or Dormans. Nothing could have been more hazardous than these expeditions, made on a dark night across a district still occupied by the enemy. The night was short. Before day dawned, the horses were saddled and ready to mount. And as soon as the first rays of morning filtered through my squadron, which had been told off as advance guard for the brigade, rapidly descended the steep slopes which commanded the small town of Cond. A's troop led. My business was to reconnoitre the eastern part of the town with mine, 
whilst F., with his troop, was to see to the western quarters. With sabres drawn, our chasseurs distributed themselves briskly, by squads, through the streets of the old city. The horses' hooves resounded cheerily on the paved streets between the old grey houses. The inhabitants ventured out upon their doorsteps, in spite of the early hour, with some hesitation at first, but glad indeed when they saw our light blue uniforms. They cheered, crying, They are gone! They are gone! But some old folk replied more calmly to my questions. Monsieur le officer, have a care. They were here an hour ago with a large number of horses and guns. There was even a general, with his whole staff lodged up at the great house up there. We would not swear that some of them are not still there. I collected my troop, and then quickly went to the chateau which stood at the northern entrance of Conde. It was a rather fine building, but I had not the time to notice its architectural style. Haste was necessary, for the brigade behind me was due to arrive. As far as I remember, the chateau formed a harmonious whole, and the different parts of it showed up cheerfully against the dark foliage of the park, which was still glittering after the night's rain. The building was in the form of a horseshoe, and in the centre there was a kind of courtyard, bordered by two rows of orange trees in tubs. I at once posted two guards, one on the road to provide against any surprise, and the other at the park entrance to prevent egress, in case any fugitive should attempt to pass. Then, with the rest of my men, I rode through the large gilded iron gates at a trot. In the avenue which led to the house, two men were standing motionless. One of them, dressed in black and clean-shaven, appeared to be some old servant of the family. The other must have been one of the gardeners. Their pale faces and red eyes showed that they had had little sleep that night. "'Well, my friend,' said I to one of them, "'is there anybody left at your place?' "'Sir,' he answered, "'I couldn't tell you, for I have not set foot in the house since they left it. What I do know is that they have feasted all night and got horribly drunk. They have drunk the whole cellar dry.' and I shouldn't be surprised if some of them are still under the table. But when I asked him to come in with me to act as a guide for our visit, he refused with a look of horror. He trembled all over at the thought of seeing perchance one of the guests who had been forced upon him. As there was no time to be lost, I told my men to dismount at once, and gave orders to one corporal to search the right wing of the building, to another to reconnoitre the left wing, I myself undertook to see about the central block with the rest of my troop. We had to make haste, so I instructed my subordinates to go quickly through the different rooms and not to inspect them in detail. The entrance door was wide open. Taking my revolver in my hand, I entered the hall, which was in an indescribable disorder. Orderlies had evidently slept and had their meals there, for the stone floor was littered with straw, and empty bottles, sardine boxes, and pieces of bread were lying about. But when I opened the door of the dining-room, I could not help pausing for a moment to look at the strange sight before me. The grey light of that September morning came in through four large windows, and shone dimly upon the long table. The officers of the guard had evidently made their arrangements well. They had levied contribution upon all the silver plate that could be found, which was hardly necessary, for, as they had arrived too late to have a proper meal prepared, they had to be content with what they had brought with them. The contrast between the rich plate, some of it broken, the empty silver dishes, and the empty tins of preserved meat was strange indeed. But they had solaced themselves in the cellar. Innumerable bottles, both empty and full, were piled upon the furniture. 
Costly glasses, of all shapes and sizes, some empty, others still half full, were standing about in every direction. The white tablecloth was soiled with large purple stains. The floor was littered with bits of smashed glass. By the table, the chairs that had been pushed back or overturned showed the number of drinkers to have been about ten. An acrid smell of tobacco and wine hung about the scene of an overnight orgy. One thing I specially remember. The sight of an officer's cap with a red band hanging from one of the branches of the large chandelier in the centre of the room. I could not help picturing to my mind the head of the man it had belonged to, some Rittmeister with an eyeglass, fat pink cheeks and neck bulging over the collar of his tunic. What a pity he had been able to decamp. That is the kind of countenance we should so much have liked to see closer and face to face. But I could not wait. We rushed hastily through the drawing-rooms, turned upside down, and bedrooms where the beds still bore traces of the summary use by heavy bodies, but we found no forgotten drunkard in them. My two corporals were already waiting for us when we returned to the courtyard. They had not found anyone in their search. Quickly we mounted, and passed rapidly out of the gilded gates. The old servant and the gardener were still on the same spot, standing silent and depressed. They said not a word to us, nor did they make any sign. They seemed to be completely unhinged and incapable of understanding what had happened. I had hardly returned to the squadron when I saw a sight I can never forget. At a turn in the road, three horsemen came towards us, covered in blood. I recognised F., the officer of the Chasseurs d'Afrique, who had been sent out to reconnoitre the evening before. He had lost his cap, and had his head bound up with a blood-stained handkerchief, his left arm was likewise slung in an improvised bandage tied round his neck. He was followed by two men, who were also covered with wounds. Their eyes shone bright and resolute in their feverish faces. One of them, having no scabbard, was still holding his sword, which was twisted and stained with blood. We pulled up instinctively and saluted. "'I haven't been able to reach the Marne,' said F., with disappointment in his voice but being fired upon by their outposts in the dark, we charged and got through, and then charged through two villages under a hail of bullets, and again we had to charge their outposts to get back. You see, I have brought back two men out of eight, and all my horses have been killed. These horses, pointing to his own, are those of three Ulans we killed so as not to have to come home on foot. Certainly, they were not riding the pretty little animals that make such excellent mounts for our chasseurs d'Afrique, but were perched upon three big mares with their heavy German equipment. But, F. repeated in a tone of vexation, I wasn't able to get to the Marne. There were too many of them for us. We pressed his unwounded hand firmly. Poor F., brave fellow! Not many days afterwards, he was to meet a glorious death charging once more with three chasseurs to rescue one of his men who had been wounded. A more perfect type of cavalryman, I might say of knight, was never seen. He sleeps now, riddled with lance wounds in the plains of Champagne. We had hardly left him when we caught sight of the reconnoitring party of my comrade, O, and were overjoyed to find that he had come back unscathed with all his men. And yet, he had had to face a fair number of dangers, attacks by cyclists and pursuit by cavalry. At Crisancy, where he had arrived at three o'clock in the morning, he found the village occupied and strongly held. There is only one bridge over the railway there, and that is at the other end of the village, 
By good luck he was able to get hold of one of the inhabitants, and he forced him, by holding a revolver to his head, to guide him by all sorts of byways so as to make a circuit without attracting attention and get to the bridge. There he set forward at a gallop, and passed in spite of being fired on by the guard. At last he reached the Marne. The only bridge he found intact for crossing the river was at the bridge at Jalgorn, a slender, fragile suspension bridge, but one we should be very glad to find if there was still time to use it. He then hurried back through the woods, but not without having to run the gauntlet of rifle fire several times more. He brought back information which was to guide our advance. It was seen at once there was not a minute to lose. The captain detached me immediately with my troop to act as a flank guard along the line of the woody crest by which the road on the right was commanded, whilst F, with his troop, crossed the Sir Melin and the railway which runs alongside of it and went to carry out the same task on the other side of the valley. My job was difficult enough. In fact, the heights which look down upon the course of the Sir Melin to the east consists of a series of ridges separated by narrow ravines at right angles to the river, and these we had to cross to continue our route towards the north. The enemy seemed to have withdrawn completely from this region, and the cannon fire in the distance towards the east could hardly be heard. At last, at about seven o'clock in the morning, we debouched upon the valley of the Marne. Whilst I sent some troopers along the road which winds the Sir Melin to keep touch with my captain, I carefully inspected the right bank of the Marne with my glasses. The scene would have tempted a painter, and the labours of war did not prevent one from enjoying the charm of such delightful pictures. The sun was gradually dispersing the mists of the sullen morning, and was beginning to gild the wooded heights which looked down upon the two banks of the river. Everywhere a calm was reigning, which seemed to promise a day of exquisite beauty. We might have fancied that we were bent on some peaceful, rural work, favoured by a radiant autumn morning. The Marne in this region winds in graceful curves. It flows limpid and clear through a narrow valley carpeted with green meadows and bordered, right and left, by gentle hills dotted with woods. At our feet, peeping from the poplars and beeches on the bank, we saw the white houses of dainty villages, Chartives, Jalgon, Varennes and Barzi. I directed my attention more particularly toward Jalgon, because it was in that direction that the attempt to cross the river would be made. The heights, immediately above Jalgon, rise steeply on the north bank and almost stand in the river. On the other hand, to the south, on our side, the left bank of the Marne is bordered by extensive meadows crossed by the railway and the high road to Epinay. The position, therefore, would have been very strong for the Germans, if they had crossed to the other side of the river, for we should have been obliged before we could reach the bridge to traverse a vast open expanse which they could have kept under the fire of their artillery. My chasseurs, prompt to grasp the reason of things, scrutinised the opposite bank no less intently than I. No movement could be seen. Nothing suggested the presence of troops among the russet thickets which covered the sides of the silent hill. Could they have already repaired further north? Could they have abandoned this formidable position without any attempt to defend it? At that moment one of my chasseurs appeared, coming by the steep path which led from the road to the wooded ridge on which we were. His horse was panting, for the declivity was stiff, and he had had to hasten. He brought me orders. Mon Lieutenant, the captain has sent me to tell you to join him as quickly as possible at the other end of the bridge. The first troop has already crossed, but some of the enemy's horse have been seen on the other side of the village. 
As he said these words, we heard some firing in the distance, which sounded very distinct and sharp in the radiant peace of that beautiful September morning. Come, so much the better, thought I. We have engaged them. We shall have a good time. My men had already begun to joke and to be more alert and abrupt in their movements. It was a kind of joyous reaction which always affects troopers when they begin to hear the guns and look forward to a good hard ride in which they, like the rest of us, are always certain of getting the best of it. In single file we went quickly down towards the plain by the stony, slippery path. We soon reached the high road, and then turned to the left and came upon the long causeway bordered by poplars which led to the bridge. Quite close to the bank I saw a small group of dismounted cavalrymen, and soon recognised our colonel with his brigade staff. He was giving his orders to the lieutenant-colonel commanding the chasseurs d'Afrique. I went up to him to report, and learnt that the first squadron had already crossed the river and occupied the village on the other side. Some parties of German cavalry had been seen on the neighbouring heights. I got ready to rejoin my comrades at once, but patience was required if the Marne was to be crossed. The bridge appeared to be a delicate sort of toy hovering over the water. How could they dream of sending thousands of men, horses and guns over a thing so slender that it looked as though it were supported by fragile meshes of spider's web? Captain D. gave me the colonel's precise orders, not to pass more than four troopers at a time, and these at walking pace. Taking the initiative in the movement, I started with my first four chasseurs. The bridge rang strangely under our hooves, and seemed to me to oscillate in an alarming manner. Fortunately, the enemy was not on the other side. If he had been, our passage would have cost us dear. As I was making these reflections, a violent fusillade burst out from the edge of the woods overlooking Jargon to the east. It must have been directed upon the village, for no bullets whistled around us, so it was probably our first squadron engaging the German cavalry. When I got to the other end of the bridge, my impatience increased. It was torture to think of the time it would take to collect my thirty men and hurry forward to help the others, and I noticed the same impatience in my men's looks. Those who were on the bridge, walking slowly and gently across, seemed to implore me to let them trot, but I pretended not to understand, and the horse's feet continued to trample heavily over the echoing bridge. At last all my men were over. We fell in and reached Jalgon at a trot. On passing through it we found several of the inhabitants on their doorsteps. Monsieur le officer, Monsieur le officer, will they come back again? Never, I shouted with conviction. I stopped an orderly, who told me that the German cavalry were firing on the exit from the town. How many of them he could not say, as they were hidden in the woods. He told me, too, that the first squadron was holding all the entrances to the north and east of the village, except the one on the river bank on the road to Marsili, where my comrade F. had posted his troop. I decided then to put myself at the disposal of the party defending the chief exit from the village, the one that opened on the road to Fismes. It was the most important one, for it was in that direction that the Germans were retiring. The village had been prevented from spreading further to the north by the heights, which formed an abrupt barrier. It is built astride the road to Fismes, which thus becomes its principal, if not its only, street. I had then to go right through Jalgon before I could get out of it in the direction of the firing. I soon did this, and found the horses of the first squadron massed in the short alleys leading out of the main street. I ordered my troop to dismount in a yard much too small and very inconvenient, but the first thing to do was to clear the causeway and shelter our horses from the bullets, 
which might enfilade the street if the fighting bore away towards the left. Then, whilst a non-commissioned officer collected the squads for the action on foot, I ran as far as the furthest houses of the village to reconnoitre the ground and get orders. I spied Major P in a sheltered nook, still mounted, and he told me of his anxiety about the situation. The enemy riflemen were invisible and were riddling the outskirts of the village, while we were unable to reply and some guns had been seen which were being got into position. He advised me to go and see the captain of the first squadron, who had been ordered to defend that entrance of the village, and to place myself at his disposal in case of need. Whilst we were talking, my troop, led by its non-commissioned officer, came to the place where we were, edging along by the walls. The men, calm and smiling, with their carbines ready, waited in silence for the signal to advance. I signed to them to wait a little longer, and then, going round the wall, I found myself suddenly in the thick of the fray. I must say the reception I got startled me. The bullets came rattling in hundreds, chipping the walls and cutting branches from the trees. On our side there was absolute silence. Our men, on their knees or lying flat behind any cover they could find, did not reply, as they could see nothing, and waited stoically under the shower of bullets until their adversaries chose to advance. I looked for Captain Diel, who commanded the first squadron. There he was, standing with his face to the enemy and his hands in his pockets, quietly giving his orders to a non-commissioned officer. On my asking if he wanted me, he explained the situation. The enemy, numbers unknown, was occupying the woods overlooking Jalgon to the east. It was impossible for us to debouch just yet. The essential thing was to hold the village, and consequently the bridge, until our infantry could come up. He told me that the first troop of my squadron, led by Lieutenant D.A., had just advanced in extended order into the vineyards, orchards and fields stretching between the road and the river. He was going to reconnoitre the woods and see what kind of force was holding it. "'You see, dear fellow, for the present, I don't want the help of your carbines. I have my whole squadron here, and they can't get a shot. So long as the enemy sticks to the wood, all we can do is wait and keep our powder dry.' I put my troop under shelter in a small yard, and directed my non-commissioned officer to keep in touch with me, in case I might want him. Then I went back to the outskirts of the village to examine the ground. I then joined my friend S. behind a large heap of faggots. He commanded the nearest troop of the first squadron, and we could not help laughing at the curious situation, being formed up for battle, fronting the enemy, under a hail of bullets, and not able to see anything. During the campaign... S. had become a philosopher, and he deserved some credit for it, for the great moral and physical sufferings we had endured must have even still more insupportable to him than to any of us. In the regiment, S. was considered preeminently the society officer. He went to all the receptions, all the afternoon teas, all the bridge parties, all the dinners. He was an adept at tennis and golf and a first-rate shot. His elegance was proverbial, and the beautiful cut of his tunics, breeches, jackets and coats was universally admired. The way his harness was kept and the shape of his high boots were a marvel. To say all this is to give some idea of the change he suddenly experienced in his habits and in his tastes during these demoralising days of retreat and merciless hours of pursuit. But in spite of it all, he had kept his good humour and never lost his gay spirits. He still accompanied his talk with elaborate gestures, and seemed to be just as much at ease behind the heap of wood, bombarded with bullets, as in the best-appointed drawing-room. His clothes were stained and patched. 
His beard had begun to grow, and yet under this rough exterior the polished man of the world could always be divined. He explained the beginnings of the affair with perfect clearness and self-possession, how the scouts sent up to the ridge by D.A. and driven off by the Germans had fallen back upon Jalgon, how the first squadron had come to barricade and defend the village, and in what anxiety they were wanting to know what had become of D.A.'s troop, which had started out to reconnoitre the wood. We hoisted ourselves to the top of the faggot stack and peeped over carefully. The glaring white road wound up the flank of the slope between the fields dotted with apple trees. At a distance of eight hundred yards in front of us stretched the dark border of the wood, and from which the fusillade was coming. To our right, at the edge of the water, on the road leading to Marsili, F. must have been able to see the enemy, for we could distinctly hear the crackle of his carbines. Our attention was drawn to a man of F.'s troop, running along under the wall, bending almost double to escape the attention of the sniper and endeavouring to screen himself behind the high grass. As soon as he came near enough, we called out, "'What is it?' "'The lieutenant has sent me to say that the enemy has just placed some guns in position up there, in the opening of the wood.' Saying which, he pointed vaguely in a direction where we could see nothing. However, we knew that F. would not have warned us if he had not been quite certain of the fact. So for some unpleasant minutes we wondered what the enemy's objective was.' We longed to know at once where the projectiles were going to burst. Would it be on F's troop, or on the bridge, or on the infantry which, perhaps, were beginning to debouch, or perhaps on that portion of the brigade that had remained dismounted on the left bank, drawn up for action? The uncertainty was worse than the danger itself, but we were not long in doubt. Two shrieks of flying shells, two explosions about three hundred yards in front of us, two puffs of white smoke rising above the green fields. This showed they had an objective we had not considered, namely de A's troop, for the shrapnel had burst in the direction he had just taken with his men. Our anxiety did not last long. We soon made out our chasseurs, coming back quietly, not running, and in good order. They took to the ditch, a fairly deep one which ran along the left side of the road, and covered them up to the middle. The German shells were badly aimed, and exploded either in front of them or higher up on the hillside. But our anxiety became more intense every minute. Had a shell fallen on the road, or in the ditch, we should have seen those brave fellows knocked over, mown down, cut to pieces by the hail of bullets. When we're fighting ourselves, we hardly have time to think about our neighbours in this way. We have our own cares, and our first thought is for the safety of the men who form our little family, the troop. But when one is safe, or fairly so, it is torture to watch comrades advancing under the enemy's fire, without any protection. At that moment the Germans were concentrating their fire upon the small line of men we were looking at, two hundred yards away from us. The shells succeeded one another uninterruptedly, but without any greater precision. We watched our friends coming nearer until they had almost reached our barricade, and noticed that two of the chasseurs were being supported by their comrades. In our anxiety we got up out of our shelter, but de A shouted, "'It's nothing! Only scratches!' At last they got in, and whilst our good and indefatigable assistant sergeant P took charge of the wounded men, we pressed round the officer and questioned him as to what he had seen. Are there many of them? Was there any infantry? we asked. But his daring reconnaissance had not been very fruitful. He had had to stop when the artillery had opened fire on him, and had not been able to see how many adversaries we had to deal with. Acting on the advice of Major P, our captain, who had just rejoined us with the third troop, gave us orders to mount. 
We were only in the way here, where there were too many defenders already, so recrossed the bridge to put ourselves at the Colonel's disposal. I led with my troop, and we passed through Jalgon by the main street. The inhabitants thought we were beating retreat, and became uneasy. Some women uttered cries, begging us not to leave them at the mercy of the enemy. We had to calm them by saying that they need not fear, that we were still holding the Germans, that our infantry would soon arrive, and that in an hour the foe would have decamped. To tell the truth, we were not quite so sure of it ourselves. The enemy were in some force, and he had guns. Our infantry had at least fifteen kilometres to march before their advance guard could debouch on the bridge at Jargon. If they had not started before dawn, they could not arrive before eleven o'clock, and it was then barely nine. The German artillery was already beginning to fire upon the village. Suddenly, as we reached the market-place, we saw a group of three dismounted chasseurs emerging from an alley that ran steeply down the Marne. They belonged to F's troop. Two of them were supporting the third, whom we at once recognised. It was Laurent, a fine fellow, and a favourite with the whole squadron. It went to our hearts to see him. His left eye was nothing but a red patch, from which blood was flowing freely, drenching his clothing. He was moaning softly, and, blinded by the blood, allowed himself to be led like a child. The corporal with him explained, A bullet went in just over his eye. I don't know if the eye itself was hit. The captain sprang off his horse. Cheer up, Laurent. It shall be attended to at once. Perhaps it will be nothing, my man. Come with me. We will take you to the Red Cross ambulance close by. Then, between his groans, the wounded man said a thing I shall not easily forget. Mon capitaine, haven't they taken away their guns yet? He still had an interest in the battle. I heard afterwards that F. had sighted the German guns, and that the fire of his troop had been directed upon them. Laurent would have liked to hear that they had been driven away. He was carried off to the ambulance. I went on towards the bridge. The cannon and rifle fire still raged fiercely, but none of the shots reached the bank where we were. We had to repeat the trying process of crossing the swaying bridge by fours at walking pace. I led off with four troopers. It was not so tedious this time, as my eyes were distracted by the view of the green meadows on the opposite side. The colonel had disposed the brigade in such a way that he could concentrate his fire upon the bridge and the opposite bank in case we could not maintain our position there. A squadron on our left, concealed in the sand quarry, was directing its fire upon the heights where the German artillery was posted. Both up and down the stream, the chasseurs d'Afrique lined the river banks, making use of every scrap of cover. Peeping out over the trunks of fallen trees, banks, and ditches, inquisitive heads could be seen wearing the khaki tack on it. But my troubles were not yet over. Just as I was going to step ashore from the bridge, Captain D. brought me the Colonel's orders to recross the river with my whole squadron, and occupy a clump of houses to the left of the bridge. It was evidently a wise precaution. Although no firing had come from this direction, it was quite possible that some of the enemy might have slipped through the woods and come halfway down the slopes but I did not expect such a bad time as I was going to have. At the very moment when I was turning back, and was beginning the hateful passage for a third time, the enemy gunners, changing their objective, aimed at the bridge, and the shrapnel bullets began disturbing music once more. Could any situation be more execrable than ours, to be upon a bridge as thin as a thread, hanging as if by a miracle over a deep ravine, to see this bridge enfiladed by heavy musketry fire, and to be obliged to walk our horses over the two hundred yards which separated one bank from the other. If we had been on foot, so that we could have run and expended our strength in getting under cover, since we could not use it to defend ourselves, 
we should not have complained. But to be mounted on good horses, which in a few galloping strides could have carried us behind the ramparts of houses, and to be obliged to hold them back instead of spurring them on, was very unpleasant, and made us feel foolish. I looked at the four brave chasseurs in front of me. They instinctively put up their shoulders as high as they could, as if to hide their heads between them. But not one of them increased his pace. Not one of them looked round at me, to beg me to give his orders for a quicker advance. And what a concert was going on all the time. Whilst the horses' hoofs were beating out low and muffled notes, the bullets flew above us and around us, with shrill cracklings and whistlings, which were anything but harmonious. Happily the firing was distant and disgracefully bad, for at the pace we were travelling we must have offered a very convenient mark. Another twenty yards. Ten more. At last we were safely under cover. I communicated the colonel's orders to the captain, who came to join us and directed us to occupy the little garden of a fair-sized house situated just on the edge of the Marne, and most advanced of a small group of buildings on the left-hand side of the bridge. After lodging the horses in an alley between the house and an adjoining shanty, I went to reconnoitre my ground. The house was a rustic restaurant, which in the summer no doubt afforded the inhabitants an object for a walk. On passing along the terrace leading to the river, I found the disorder usual in places that have been occupied by the Germans. Tables overturned, bottles broken, the musty smell of empty casks, and broken crockery. The little garden did not offer much protection for my men. However, crouching behind a kind of breastwork of earth, which shut it off from the woods, they were able at least to hide themselves from view. I at once posted my sharpshooters, sent out a patrol on foot as far as the entrance to the wood, and then turned my attention to what was happening near the bridge. Whilst I was busy carrying out the captain's orders, I had not noticed that the situation had undergone a decided change, and that our chances of being able to complete our task thoroughly had increased considerably. The German guns were no longer aiming at the village. Their fire had become more rapid, and their shrapnel flew hissing over the barricade. We could see them bursting much further off, on the other side of the water, in the direction of the woods crowning the heights whence, in the morning, I had admired the smiling landscape. I inferred, then, that the advance guard of our corps was debouching. In half an hour it would be there, and the German cavalry, we felt sure, would not hold out much longer. But our fine infantry had done more than this. They had, no doubt, found good roads, or perhaps the German gunners, hypnotised by the village, had not spied them. For I had now the pleasure of witnessing one of the most exhilarating spectacles I had seen since the opening of the campaign. From where I stood on the bank, I could see the thin line of the bridge above. I did not think that anyone would risk crossing it now that it was known to be a mark for the enemy's fire. But suddenly I saw five men appear and begin to cross it. I could distinguish them perfectly. They were infantry soldiers, an officer and four men. The officer walked first, calmly, with a stick under his right arm and in his left hand a map which formed a white patch on his blue coat, and behind him the men in single file, bending slightly under their knapsacks, their caps pushed back and holding their rifles, marched firmly and steadily. They might have been on parade. Their legs could be distinguished for a moment against the blue sky. Their step was so regular that I could not help counting. One, two, one, two, as their feet struck the bridge. But just at that moment, when the little group had got halfway across, a hiss, followed by a deafening explosion, made our hearts beat. 
and we heard the curious noise made by the innumerable bullets and pieces of a shell striking the water. The Germans had seen our infantry beginning to cross the river, and they were now pouring their fire upon the bridge. I looked again at the men, and saw they were there, all five of them, still marching with the same cool, resolute step. One, two, one, two. Ah, the brave fellows! How I wanted to cheer them, to shout, Bravo! But they were too far off, and the noise of the fusillade would have prevented them from hearing me. No sooner had they reached the bank than another little group stepped onto the narrow bridge, and then, after them, another, and each was saluted by one or two shells with the same heavy rain of bullets falling into the water. But Providence protected our soldiers. The outline of the bridge was very slight, and the gunners of the German cavalry divisions were very sorry marksmen. Their projectiles always burst either too far or too near, too high or too low. And as soon as a hundred men had got across, and the first sharpshooters had clambered up the heights that rise sheer from the river and begun to debouch upon the plateau, there was a sudden silence. The enemy's cavalry had given way, and our corps d'armée was free to pass the Marne by the bridge of Jalgon. The entire battalion of the advance guard then began to pour over the bridge on their way to the plateau. Our brigade was quickly got together, and our chasseurs hastened to water their horses. Out came the nosebags from the saddlebags. A few minutes later no one would have suspected that fighting had taken place at this spot. The men hurriedly got their snack, for we knew the halt would not last long, and that the pursuit had to be pushed till daylight failed. Our troop was in good heart, and thankful that the squadron's losses had been so small. F. had just seen Laurent, the one wounded chasseur of his troop, and said the doctors hoped to save his eye, so we had no reason to grumble. Saddlebags were now being buckled and horses rebridled. I was to go forward to replace the troop that had led the advance guard. The colonel sent for me and ordered me to proceed at once along the road to Fismes, search the outskirts of the village carefully, and take up a position on the heights overlooking the valley. My troop got away quickly, and I rejoiced again at the sight of my fellows, radiant at the thought of having a dash at the enemy. We had to hasten to get ahead of the foremost parties of infantry, which also halted for a meal. I detached my advance scouts. Their eager little horses set off at a gallop along the white road, and I was delighted to see the ease and decision with which my chasseurs flashed out their swords. They seemed to say, Come along, come along, we are ready. As for me, I rode on in quiet confidence, knowing that I had in front of me eyes keen enough to prevent any surprise. One squad climbed nimbly up the ridge to the left. The horses scrambled up the steep ground, dislodging stones and clods of earth. They struggled with straining hocks hard to get up, and seemed to challenge each other for a race to the top. Their riders, in extended order, showed as patches of red and blue against the grey stubble. Up they went, further and further, and then disappeared over the crest. Only one was still visible, but this one was my guarantee that I had good eyes, keen and alert, on my left. Should any danger threaten from that quarter, I knew well that he would pass on to me the signal received from his corporal, and I should only have to gallop to the top to judge the situation for myself. I could see the man against the blue sky, the whole outline of his body and that of his horse, the equipment and harness, the curved sword, the graceful neck, the sinewy legs, the heavy pack. I recognised the rider and knew the name of his horse. They were both of the right sort. Yes, I felt quite easy about my left. On the right the ground dropped sheer to a narrow valley, at the bottom of which flowed a stream of clear water. Among the green trees were glittering patches here and there, on which the sun threw metallic reflections, 
and on the other side rose heights covered by the forest of Riz. On the edge of this forest I could see the stately ruins of a splendid country mansion. I questioned a boy who was standing on the side of the road, looking at us half timidly, half gladly. "'Tell me, child, who burnt the chateau over there?' "'Monsieur, they did. They took everything away, all the beautiful things. "'They even carried everything off on big carts, and then they set fire to the house. "'But everything isn't burnt, and a lot of them came back again this morning with some horses, "'and they went on looking for things.' "'I sent off another squad towards the chateau, telling them first to follow the edge of the wood "'and to be careful how they approached it. "'The men got into the wood by the spaces in the bank along the road,' and scattered in the thickets that dotted the side of the spur we were turning. I was thus protected on my right. I went up at a trot to the place where the road reached the plateau, and just as I was on the point of reaching it, we were met by a crowd of village folk, men, women, and children coming along, looking radiant. I saw some of them questioning my advanced scouts, and pointing in the direction of the northeast. It was the whole population of Le Chumel, and they had come out to meet us. Le Chumel, is a small village that stands at the meeting of two roads, one leading towards Fismes, the other towards Frere de Tardenois. It has the appearance of hanging on to the hillside, for whilst the road to Frere de Tardenois continues to follow the plateau, that to Fismes dips abruptly at this place and disappears into the valley. The houses of Le Chamel are perched between these two roads. Thus the people of the village had a good view of the enemy's retreat, and everybody wanted to have his say about it. I turned to a tall man, lean and tanned, with a grizzled moustache, who had something still of a military air, and seemed to be calmer than the others around him. From him I was able to get some fairly clear information. "'Mon lieutenant, it was like this. They went off this morning early, a great number of cannons and horses. The artillery went straight on towards Fismes by the road. The cavalry cut across the fields, and disappeared over the ridge, you see, over there on the other side of the valley.' Then towards eight o'clock some of them came back. How many? Well, two or three regiments, perhaps, and some guns. And they went down towards Jalgon. I believe they wanted to destroy the bridge. Just as they got into the turn of the hill, pan, pan, they were fired at. But then, of course, we got back to our houses and shut them up as the guns began to fire. But when we heard no more reports, we came out again and saw them making off across the fields, like the others, and in the same direction but it's quite possible that some of them stayed in the woods, or in the farms on the other side of the forest of Riz. He was interrupted by my non-commissioned officer. Mon lieutenant, the scouts, they are signalling to you. I galloped up to them, when they pointed out to me, at about fifteen hundred yards distance on the opposite ridge, a small group of cavalrymen near a stack, and, on the side of the slope, a patrol of German dragoons pacing slowly with lances lowered, and stopping every now and then, and facing in our direction. I took my glasses and looked carefully at the stack, and then I saw a sight which sent a shiver of joy through me. The horsemen had dismounted and put their horses behind the stack. Three of the men then separated themselves from the rest and formed a little group. I could not distinguish their uniforms, but saw very clearly that they were looking through their glasses at us. Now and again they put their heads together and consulted the map, as it seemed. A man then came out from behind the stack on foot, and could be distinctly seen against the sky, sticking into the ground by his side a square pennon which flapped gently in the breeze. As far as I could see it was half black and half white. There could be no doubt that we were confronting a staff. So the division was not far off. It had halted, 
and perhaps intended this time to fight at close quarters. I told my men what I thought, and they were overjoyed at the idea that, after all, there was a hope of realising our dream. There was not one of them who doubted that the division of the guards had been kind enough to stop its flight, and that our brave light brigade would attack it without any hesitation and cut it to pieces. I dismounted quickly, and lost not a moment in drawing up my report. I wrote down what I had seen and what I had learnt from the inhabitants, and then called one of my chasseurs. To the colonel, full gallop! At the touch of a spur the little chestnut turned sharp around and flew down the dusty road like a whirlwind. Meanwhile I carefully posted my men, threw out scouts over the chateau and up to the forest of fear, and formed patrols under my non-commissioned officers. I then took my observation post under a large tree, which, to judge by its venerable look, must have seen many generations pass and many other wars. The village folk collected around me in such numbers that I was obliged to have them thrust back by my men to Le Chamel. To console them I said, You must go away. The enemy will take you for armed troops and fire guns at you. I kept my eye upon my staff, and wished my glasses could help me to distinguish more clearly what men I had to deal with. I longed to see what they were like, to examine the faces of these haughty rooters, who for the last four days had been fleeing before us and always refusing a real encounter. I fancied that among them might be that Rittmeister, with the bulging neck and pink cheeks, who after the orgy of that night at the Chateau de Conde had left behind him the cap that I had found hanging from the chandelier in the dining-room. How I longed to see the brigade debouch, and to receive instructions from the colonel. I had not long to wait. My messenger soon came back, trotting up the road from Jalgon. But the instructions were not what I had expected. I was to stay where I was until further orders, and to continue to observe the enemy and keep a lookout in his direction. I learnt some details from the man. The greater part of the infantry had already crossed the bridge, and there was also some artillery on this side of the river. As he said this, a clatter of wheels and chains caused me to turn my head, and I saw behind us, in the stubble fields of the plateau, two batteries of seventy-fives taking up positions. Aha! We were going to send them our greetings, then a salute to the pompous general over there, and to his aide-de-camp, the stiff and obsequious Rittmeister, whom I imagined to be at his side. I looked on gaily with my chasseurs at the laying of the guns. How we all loved that good little gun, which had so often come up to lend us the support of its terrible projectiles at critical moments. And those good fellows, the gunners, loved it too, the men we saw jumping nimbly down from their limber, quickly unhitching their piece, and pointing it with tender care towards the enemy. Standing on a bank, with his glasses to his eyes, the officer in command gave his orders which were passed from man to man by the markers, and then suddenly we heard four loud, sharp reports behind us. The whistling of the shells which almost grazed our heads was impressive, and though we knew there was no danger, we instinctively ducked but we recovered ourselves at once to see what effect they had produced. What a pity! They had fallen a bit short. We distinctly saw four small white puffs on this side of the hill, just below the group of German officers. Ah! They didn't wait for another. I saw them make off in hot haste whilst the troopers stationed behind the stack galloped off the horses. The man with the flag was the last to go, closing the procession with rather more dignity. But in ten seconds the whole lot had decamped, and the only men we could see were the dragoons of the patrol who rode back to the ridge at full speed. But, just as they reached it, the second battery opened fire, and this time the sighting was just right. 
four white puffs appeared exactly over the spot where the staff had stood a minute before, two of the right and two of the left of the stack, and all we now saw of the patrol was two riderless horses galloping madly towards the woods. Then the two batteries pounded away with a will. When I received orders to resume the forward movement, and my good chasseurs had taken up the pursuit again, the gunners had lengthened their range with mathematical precision, and the shells burst on the farther side of the ridge. I took grim pleasure in imagining what must have been happening there, where, no doubt, the division was drawn up, and whilst I continued to direct my vigilant and expert scouts, I amused myself by picturing the brilliant troopers of the Prussian Guard in headlong flight. End of chapter 4 Recording by FNH Visit www.bookranger.co.uk